Welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. I'm Ogi Chibo. I'll be alone today because Ian just graduated. Congratulations, Ian, and class of 2020. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they're relevant to anyone, both in the field of public health and outside of it. This coming week, our very own Steve Sonnier is sitting down with the Democratic Party candidates running for the office of United States Senator here in Iowa. We reached out to all campaigns to inquire about their perspectives. There will be a series of six questions related to the topics of healthcare, higher education, and public health. Each candidate had three to four minutes to respond to these questions. This primary episode contains responses for the last three questions each candidate answered. We will provide links to the full interviews that contain all questions answered by the candidates. So let's get right into it. Hello all, this is Steve. For these educational and informational interviews, I was able to talk with the following Democratic candidates for the office of U.S. Senator here in Iowa, Eddie Morrow, Kimberly Graham, and Admiral Michael Franken. Please note that these views are those of our guests and not those of From the Front Row or the University of Iowa and College of Public Health. Our team will also give Senator Joni Ernst an opportunity to be interviewed as we move closer to the general election. As Oge mentioned, the full interviews with each of the candidates can be found in our separate links provided. Here are the selected questions from our interviews with the candidates. Rural families are increasingly threatened by closures of labor and delivery units in their communities. As a U.S. Senator, what will you do to improve access to maternal care services? This was Eddie Morrow's response. Everything in rural communities has been diminished. Um, over, over the past uh, couple of decades, um, and we, we continue to see a, degrade, a degradation of, of rural communities. Uh, hospitals care for um, uh, expectant mothers, even prenatal care, um, schools, and on and on. I grew, I grew up spending a lot of time uh, in my grandmother's in Carroll, Iowa, my aunt and uncle's farm nearby there. Um, my father taught in Thompson, Iowa, in Colfax, Iowa, in Sadell, Iowa, and and I, I lived in, in many rural communities and taught in many rural communities as well. And I, and I saw firsthand um, what, what's going on there. Um, if you go look at our website at eddiemorrow.com, you'll see we have a very solid rural and farm vision um, that includes public health initiatives, public dollars at the state and federal level to keep rural hospitals open and funded and staffed. We've moved quite a ways, especially in this state, um, away from publicly funded um, health care uh, uh, mechanisms. Um, everything is pretty much privately handled today. They got Unity Point and, and, and the Mercy uh, Systems, and they do great work, um, but when it doesn't make sense for them financially, then, then they have to close. We see that with um, uh, urgent care centers and, and, and other centers, and that's what's happening in a lot of our rural communities. So then it's up for government to step in, and that, that's a time where we need to do that. So we need to have investments in rural communities. I want to go make sure that we have a public health policy, public health legislation, public health funding. Um, that provides prenatal care. We can talk about that part. I know maternity care, so somebody can have a child, you know, within a reasonable distance from where they live. They don't have to, have to drive 80 miles or 120 miles um, for that. And we talk about long-term care as well, but we need to make sure we're able to provide that. And I'll continue to talk about um, mental health because that's also lacking. Some of the things we also need to be able to talk about, um, uh, student loan debt forgiveness to encourage healthcare professionals, uh, to work in rural communities because it's not enough just to have a building there. We got to have professionals that want to be there. 
We got to have strong rural schools. We got to have we have to have connections to other communities. So people, uh, to your very first question, why does somebody want to go to a rural community? Why would somebody want to stay in Iowa? We give people reasons to go do that, to go raise their family, um, or at least to make that the first leg uh, of their career. Something I did. Um, my first leg of my career as a teacher was to go to a rural community um, and teach and, and, and bring you know, a different perspective into those communities. There'll be a lot of healthcare professionals who we like to do that. And then the last thing I'll say really quick, we need to make sure that we are, are finding more and more healthcare professionals overall. I'm very, very concerned about the future of healthcare, um, not just because of the cost, which is real, but because we don't have the infrastructure and we don't have the pipeline that's necessary, in my opinion, um, to make sure we're, we're going to have a number of people necessary to provide the care, whether it's prenatal for maternal care, long-term care, mental health care, and all the other care that we're going to need. This was Kimberly Graham's response. So critical access hospitals in rural areas, to be eligible for federal funding, they've got certain criteria. So those criteria need to be waived or drastically loosened. The criteria, as I understand it, is they have to have less than 25 inpatient beds and be more than 35 miles away from a full service hospital. So if we relax or waive those requirements, then we could we could change that and we could increase the eligibility for, for federal funding. Again, to sound like a broken record, under a universal single-payer healthcare system, there is provision for fully funding rural hospitals. So that is, there is no, are they going to be funded? Are they not going to be funded? They get funded. And there's no question of, can they not survive financially? They will be funded. They will be able to survive financially. And the reimbursement rates under a Medicare for all scenario too would be far, far higher than they are now. They have to be, they would have to be because otherwise the entire system would not be sustainable. So that's one thing that we have to work on. And that's something we can actually work on in the short term as well, even before we would have any kind of a universal single payer healthcare system is the reimbursement rates for different areas of the country are different. And rural Iowa has some of the lowest reimbursement rates, which is really harming these rural hospitals because who tends to live in rural Iowa? It tends to be elders. There's a lot of a disproportionate number of elders, people over 65, living in rural Iowa. So that is not the only people, but that's predominantly who's using these hospitals, right? And so those reimbursement rates are far too low and it's harming these hospitals. So we need a U.S. Senator who's going to go to Washington, D.C. and talk every day to, to the powers that be about increasing the reimbursement rates for rural Iowa because they are not sufficient. And it is, I think right now we're looking at roughly 18% of our rural hospitals in Iowa are at risk of closing soon in the next year or two if you just look at their financial trajectory if we don't change something for them. This was Admiral Michael Franken's response. Yeah, there, there are two, th two issues, three issues that are working against providing the same type of maternity OBGYN care from anesthetist to uh, ICU and, and the necessary, uh, those on the two sigma side of deliveries that, that rural, health, rural healthcare can't really provide. So uh, one is very low Medi Medicaid reimbursement rates. And I think something like 50% of the deliveries are Medicaid uh, paid for in rural America, in rural Iowa, even uh, thereabouts, which, and then there's elements of tort, which come into play for if you've got a low 
rate of deliveries, you start looking at the cost benefit analysis of doing those deliveries as a GP because of the malpractice insurance that's necessitated. So, I mean, that's an issue. And then also, oftentimes the hospitals also have costs associated with this. And uh, sometimes it's a, it's a net negative for the hospitals. So there's a, an expanse of things that could ultimately occur. I'm a fan of providing, and, and it depends what the source is, what the, what the vehicle source is. Is it USDA like we do uh, other benefit programs? Or is it another vehicle that provides adjuncts to the funding for Medicaid, Medicaid paying for these, these births? Um, ultimately, though, we need the, fully, the full implementation of the Affordable Care Act so that everybody has health care and you're, and you're also, you're not, the deliveries are covered under some insurance plan. And if we need to address the, the Medicaid rate, well, we should probably do that. But it has to be a business equation that works. And right now, the business equation doesn't work. Um, the consequence of that is, you're constantly struggling against competing sources of, of money when it when there's a there's an element of illogical actions associated with this. Uh, we need to look at all the levers that we can pull and say which ones are executable. The the business equation uh, has to has to work well because this is a, this is a you know your first question was quality of life, getting people to live out here. Well, health health care, maternity care childcare, housing, infrastructure, all of this is part of the equation. As the pandemic continues, schools are shifting to online methods to provide education. Iowa is currently ranked 45th in state broadband access, and many other states have similar connectivity issues. What actions will you take to ensure students and others remain connected in this new digital era? This was Eddie Morrow's response. Yeah, thanks for asking. And this is what we're doing here today is telling how good the digital era is, is moving us and where we've been going. You know, before COVID, we visited 92 counties in person and been visiting with people in, in dining centers and American legions and churches and other places. And since then, we've done over 100 virtual uh, conversations, had some on healthcare. So, again, I encourage people to go to our website um, and look at some of our, our previous videos and come join us. Uh, for so, some of those conversations. To your point, COVID has demonstrated lots of shortcomings in our society and, and in communities. And one of them is the lack of connectivity uh, in rural communities in particular, and then the lack of access in urban centers because of economic inequities that we've had for far too long. Um, and that impacts farmers and small business owners in rural communities, it impacts families, and it impacts education. So there's a lot of rural communities that have not been able to do the same that our suburban uh, brothers and sisters and siblings have been able to do because they don't have access. They don't have the connectivity um, to continue on with their education. Um, and that's very critical. As a former teacher, I knew what it was like uh, to, to be teaching and teaching all of a sudden have a break just for 10 days for, for, for the holiday and come back. Um, and, and the lactivity is really harmful for the overall education and future of, of uh, our young people in rural centers. Um, so the easy answer is we have, we've been talking about broadband access for many years. And, and we need a real infrastructure bill in 2021. One of the first things that I'll do, because it's going to be something we're going to be needing uh, when, we when we tackle the, the financial hardships facing Iowans and facing Americans anyway, um, getting people back to work. We need to have massive infrastructure. You said we're like 45th or 46th 
and broadband were 50th and bridges were just horrible. Um, uh, but that's going to be part of what we need to be doing. It's going to be part of our green energy investments as well, um, which all brings some vitality to rural communities. Um, but we need to make sure we're making those investments at the state, federal, and even the private level to make broadband a utility, Steve. It shouldn't be something that right now, if you're in a rural community, if you're wealthier, you can pay a lot of money to get some piping run to your house or to your business, but it's very, very expensive. Uh, but every, every day, um, rural uh, um, uh, citizens can't do that. Every day, people in rural communities can't do that. Um, it just doesn't work very well. I do a lot of work in Tanzania, um, install water systems there, um, and everything in that area is wireless and good connectivity. Um, you can you can engage with people. I did one of our podcasts, you know, one of our virtual town halls the other day with a gentleman from there. Um, it's capable to do that. We got to go invest more both in wireless and, 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 and wire connectivity to make sure people have that. Uh, very, very important uh, that we do it. This was Kimberly Graham's response. We somehow managed to electrify the entire nation, right, back in the day. And I would argue that in 2020, high-speed internet is, it should be like electricity. It should be a utility, like water, like electricity, like having access to sewer, right? It's, just, it's, it's something you have to have. And not only do we need to focus on rural areas to make sure that uh, whatever investments are necessary to provide high-speed internet to every single household in the United States of America, it's just absurd that that isn't already the case, but we also need to make sure that we pay attention to urban areas. I was just speaking to a gentleman last week who lives, I believe, in East Waterloo, and he, we were talking and his call dropped, and he called me back and said, you're not going to believe this. But my calls drop in East Waterloo all the time. Well, East Waterloo is a predominantly black neighborhood. And he said, this doesn't happen to me in the, you know, predominantly white areas of Waterloo, only here. And it's because we're not making those infrastructure type investments in communities that often have lower property values. And that has got to stop. We have no chance at providing equality of opportunity if the kids that live in the neighborhood with the lower property values don't have high-speed internet. That's just, you know, as we see with the schools all going online, that's just, that's just a necessity. It's a requirement. So I would just continue to advocate for increased investment. I don't think this is something that we can leave to the states. I think we've got we've to make federal investment in it because um, the states aren't getting it done. So I think, I think this is one of those issues of, serious inequalities happen on many levels for someone in 2020 who cannot access high-speed internet because it's literally where we do everything. It's where we research stuff. It's where we learn. It's where we connect. It's, it's just, it's where we find jobs. It's where we fill out job applications. It's, it's everything. It's everything. So we need to invest in it. This was Admiral Michael Franken's response. I'm a big fan of a comprehensive infrastructure plan as part of the kickstarting process coming out of this pandemic. So one of the principal issues I had with the HEROES Act was I wanted it to be the seed money for a larger infrastructure plan. And I mean, it can be, it can be iteratively executed, and I'm a, I'm a fan of that, but from uh, basic horizontal to vertical construction to re-enhancing broadband access and digitizing our economy, I'm, uh, this, this is... Uh, I think central to what America needs to move to. So I would view broadband access like, like the Roosevelt did 
with rural electrification. This becomes uh, what we need in America. And you know, we, this is uh, hugely executable because we're starting at a, at a far easier state with equal amounts of benef uh, benefits. So let me spin a yarn for you here. In the early in the uh, uh, Roosevelt administration, 5% of rural America had wired electricity, non-micro uh, scale. And uh, by the time he uh, passed away in 1945, 95% of America did. You know, we got on it and we made it happen during the depression and during the war years. Similarly, we can do this with broadband and make it a, make it a, a right and make it part of medicine services, make it part of uh, rural health care, and imagine the, the opportunities for high-definition telemedicine and the, the other enhancements that, that become entirely feasible. For our final question for today, due to COVID-19, we've seen a tremendous growth in the use of telemedicine, where providers can consult with patients through audio-only or audio-video technology. How, as a U.S. Senator, will you support the continued use of telemedicine in a cost-effective way? This was Eddie Morrow's response. Yeah, first of all, kudos to the healthcare industry uh, and many other industries that have adapted, that have been innovative and in, in connecting with uh, uh, patients and customers and more during uh, an unprecedented time. Um, and this ties to our earlier conversation. We need to make sure that connectivity is a reality for every island. And it would be better, uh, again, to have the utility of broadband um, or wireless connectivity. Uh, it's one thing to have a conversation um, with your healthcare professional on the phone. It's another to be able to look at your patient um, and be able to see them on a screen. Um, and, that w and we know, again, my parents are 85 and, and 89. They're going to have a hard, hard time picking up their phone and making that connectivity. Um, we're going to have to do some training and help and walk people through until they get they're comfortable with that. But we need to continue to look for ways um, that we can make that connection. And maybe it's going to be through a satellite type of a, a service right through our television where we can have that, that connection. We have it, all the technological capabilities of doing that. We, again, we've got to make some investments to make that happen. We're going to ask the healthcare industry to be part of that. We might make sure we're working, um, uh, again, from a, a legislative level and a regulatory level to talk about allowing that to happen. For a long time, um, the healthcare industry wasn't a big fan because it actually – um, might be less money for um, coming in for doctors that are making those connections. And, and other industries have also um, uh, uh, seemed to put up a roadblock to that. What I think we need to also be talking about, Steve, is, is what is the real um, business model of, of delivering medicine today? We need to talk about that. I don't think it should be how many patients you see in a day. I don't think it should be how many pills you sell. I think it should be what kind of value to do to make people healthier. Uh, we need to figure out how do we make that happen. Um, and, and that will be helpful in really delivering care and reducing costs, both allowing uh, healthcare professionals to make the livings that they, 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 they deserve and do deserve, um, very, very important for us. So it's a kind of a, a comprehensive uh, answer to your question, but we should not replace the need for physical and, and, and rural facilities though, in hospitals just by this. I want to make sure I, I mention that, um, and I can see that happening, that we're still not going to go then invest in rural infrastructure or, or, or getting people to go work in rural mental health facilities and taking care of long-term facilities just because of, of the connectivity. Um, but we want to definitely use it um, and use it uh, uh, well, similar to what we're doing now. This was Kimberly Graham's response. I think it's a fantastic, fantastic idea. One of my only caveats, and I, and I think it's a fantastic idea, period. And at the same time, I know there are some things that 
it's very difficult to get if you are not in the same room with a patient. And I know that there's times that just can't happen. You just can't be in the same room with them. There's, there's just no way that's too far away or, or whatever reason that can't happen. So I think that's fantastic to have telemedicine available, especially for things like renewing a prescription, right? Where you have to check in with the doctor. Um, you don't want to be sending, you know, somebody with, with health conditions four hours away, you know, to be able to have to see their doctor for something that if their doctor could just speak with them by video chat, they could renew that prescription without any problems would take 15 minutes on a, on a video chat. Um, so it certainly makes sense, but for it to be sustainable, hopefully this is one of those things that could, a good thing that could come out of this horrific pandemic is that insurance companies are willingly being forced to, I'm not sure exactly how this has happened, but they are covering these telemedicine visits as if they were in-person visits. And they didn't want to do that before, or they weren't doing that before. So hopefully that will come out of this on the other side of this, that will become a new normal that they will pay, but they also need to pay the same. So they need, we need payment parity. So a, a physician should get the same amount of money for sitting with someone on a Zoom call for 15 minutes as they would get if that person walked into their office for 15 minutes. Otherwise, there's going to be a disincentive to be doing telemedicine. And I don't think we should disincentivize it that way. So I, I, think, it's, I think it's here to stay. I hope it's here to stay. I hope we also realize there's still value in certain situations where it's possible to be face-to-face -face with your medical care provider. And obviously, there's some situations where you know, they're not, they're not going to be able to yet do like an ultrasound on you through your Zoom call, right? There's situations where you're going to have to go physically and get testing or get whatever it is, blood draws. But for so many things, it would be so much more efficient and, and so much easier, you know, especially for people that it's for, for whom it's very difficult to get out and about physically, it would just be phenomenal. And I hope that it, it continues to grow and that until we get universal single payer, that insurance companies will recognize the value of it and continue to do it. This was Admiral Michael Franken's response. Well, I think the cost-effective way is already there. This, this may seem far-fetched, but I, I do quite a bit of high-technology uh, art of the feasibles. And we have the ability now to do facial recognition, identification to high degree, uh, and you know, above two sigma so that we can use drones for delivery of, of medicines and prescriptions. And imagine uh, the, if you're going back to your original uh, maternity question, uh, potentially telemedicine with a midwife or with a PA, other, other options, and, uh, and, and using the quickness, availability of drone technology to deliver necessary medicines and, and, and the like, to give us more flexibility for rural healthcare. This is available now. I think telemedicine is not going to retreat at all. It's actually going to be enhanced in terms of uh, if, if the fully implemented Affordable Care Act with a, and on the exchange is Medicare as an option, I think this is infinitely doable. And ultimately, that telemedicine uh, servicing will be provided to groups of people and uh, because you'll have the bandwidth necessary to zoom like this in a much larger uh, body of individuals. And it doesn't obviously need to be local, but it 
certainly could be. That's my thoughts. And, and I, you know, I, I don't, we'll certainly not go back with telemedicine. We're actually going to go forward. We should look to see how we, we deliver it with the, uh, the lowest cost and the best fidelity. So that's the end of this interview. We hope you enjoyed it. Let us know what you thought about this episode and series at CPH Grad Ambassador at UIOI.edu. That is CPH-G-R-A-D-A-M-B-A-S-S-A-D-O-R at UIOWA.edu. You can find us on Facebook at the University of Iowa College of Public Health we're on iTunes and Spotify as well as the University of Iowa College of Public Health. A special thank you to all the candidates who took out the time to come on the pod this week. This episode of From the Front Row was hosted and written by Ogie Chibo and Steve Sonier. This episode was produced by Steve Sonier. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. See you next week. Stay safe and happy social distancing.